Listen now to Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. You'll find that on page 923, beginning on page 923 in your pew Bible if you're using that. And by the way, I'm using a little bit more recent revision of the ESV, so from time to time you might see a word difference here and there. just want to let you know that um, I'm not reading in some other version, but we have a bit earlier version in our pews of the one that I'm using, and I don't think it's needful to point those out, but when you see them, it's actually positive. It's uh, beneficial to reflect on the difference in the word that's chosen. Um, So uh, just draw your attention to it, circle it perhaps, and something you can come back to later, all right? Listen now to the Word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to, be circumc- to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, uh, to take from them a people for His name, and with, this, this, and with the words of the prophets, uh, with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who, have, uh, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church 
to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they, went, uh, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So reads the Word of God. And clearly, theological disagreement is in the crosshairs this morning, right? Theological disagreement is in the crosshairs. And if you hadn't heard what I said just a few moments ago, you could quite possibly think that I mean that it's in the crosshairs in our day today. And surely that is true. But that's not what I mean here. It's in the crosshairs in our passage today. Theological disagreement is in the crosshairs. Theological disagreement is being handled in Acts 15 in a way that has really set precedent for the church ever since with regard to how matters like this should be addressed and resolved. This is the first church council, we might say. And since then, more have followed. Different branches of the church uh, embracing different numbers of these ecumenical councils, but all of them, including us, embracing the first four in which the doctrines of God and of Christ were hammered out by the church, proper wording of those doctrines established so that we might believe and recite creeds together that we can oftentimes read in our morning worship services, Nicaea, Chalcedon, and others. So the creeds that we recite together in our corporate worship were hammered out in different church councils. Our church covenant imitates them. So I said it's so appropriate that we read it this morning. The language of orthodoxy that we commit to memory in order to think properly about God and about His Word and about His ways come to us from these gatherings. The doctrine of the Trinity, the twofold nature of Christ, even the books that belong in our Bibles are the collective work of the church gathered together in discussion of the big questions 
that we've faced about our Christian faith and about the gospel and about the eternal truths of God that we believe and that we stand on and that we defend, oftentimes throughout history with our own lives. Now, to be clear, and it's important to be clear on this point, these truths are not generated through these discussions. They are clarified and articulated by these discussions of the church gathered together. What we're dealing with is the direct revelation of God in Scripture, and what these councils are doing is articulating what we believe about the doctrines that are presented there. We're dealing with the direct revelation of God in Scripture, and also in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit, and in nature. And what we're working on is a clarification of what that revelation says in answers to questions, important questions, that arise on matters which Scripture doesn't directly address, but which it does insinuate or assume in what it teaches. So when we hear those insinuations and assumptions in the Word of God, the doctrine of the Trinity being one of them, established clearly by reference, by insinuation in a number of texts of Scripture, but nowhere spelled out for us with clarity so that we can understand that doctrine and embrace it. These councils, these discussions dig deeply into the Word of God and seek to put those doctrines together into statements that the church can affirm and believe and understand, not only their unity with one another, but their understanding of the truth of the Word of God and what it actually says. That's what a church doctrinal statement is. It's our understanding of the Scriptures together in this body. And yes, it does at times separate us from others in other places, but, but that's because... We take time to dig into the Word and to see what it says. And sometimes it does divide. But it divides based on the Word of God. Are you thankful this morning for doctrinal statements and for church covenants that we can read together that say, here's what we believe about the church. Here's what we believe about God. Our Themelios ABF, when it starts up in just a few weeks, is going to be addressing matters like that important matters that should matter to us. It runs deeply in our hearts, these truths. And we need help with one another, discerning together how it is that we articulate these great doctrines. The council convened in Jerusalem here in Acts 15, which Luke narrated, was addressing how the good news of reconciliation with God through the Jews' Messiah applied to Gentiles who were receiving Him by faith. It's the first big doctrinal theological controversy that arose in the church, and we see a model in Acts 15 for how such things should be addressed. And by the way, this is a harder question then than we often recognize it to be now. We think this is a really easy one, a softball question. Those who have been studying Scripture for a while know that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Not by works of the law. We hammer on that. If we were unclear on it 500 years ago, the Reformation breaking away from the Western church on the basis of that doctrine, the doctrine of justification and the role of the law in bringing us to an understanding of our sin that we might receive the free grace of God expressed to us in Christ. 
we feel like we've got a lot of momentum on this doctrine. We don't feel the tension any longer. But I think we need to feel the tension in the first days. It was starting to emerge. John Stott gives an extended description that I think we could find helpful in picking up on the tensions in the first century church on this subject. The first time it was being discussed by a council of churches. Stott wrote, quote, So far, it had been assumed that Gentiles would be absorbed into Israel by circumcision and that by observing the law, they would be acknowledged as bona fide members of the covenant people of God. And you could say, well, wait a minute, no. But that is, in the Old Testament, that's how it would happen. You would embrace the God of Israel by becoming a Jew. And so that had been the understanding all along. Now, Stott continues, Something quite different was now happening. However, something which disturbed and even alarmed many. They took their doctrine and theology seriously. Continuing the quote, Gentile converts were being welcomed into fellowship by baptism without circumcision. They were becoming Christians without also becoming Jews. They were retaining their own identity and integrity as members of other nations, not the chosen people of God. It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of Gentiles, but could they approve conversion without circumcision? Of faith in Jesus without works of the law? of a commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world? And the church of Christ not as a Jewish sect, but as the international family of God? These were the revolutionary questions which some were daring to ask. That takes us back over the centuries a bit to understand and appreciate what was actually being discussed here. When we hear this, perhaps we can gain a deeper appreciation for what the early church was struggling with. Why it was worth, for instance, sending Peter and John to check on what was happening in Samaria as we saw back in chapter 8. Why Peter had to answer for his encounter with Cornelius in the early part of chapter 11. And why a little bit later in chapter 11, Barnabas was sent out to observe the work that was going on in this multicultural church in Antioch. What's happening? How is this spreading? Important stuff. And now, Paul and Barnabas go up to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this question. This question of what happens when Gentiles receive Jesus by faith And as a result, we'll learn good lessons about how to handle theological disagreements ourselves. And that's the aim this morning, to understand and appreciate not only how these are formed, but what we do with them, how we go about it. So let's walk through this passage in four steps. You see them listed there in your bulletin. That'll be our outline this morning. And this week, we will progress through the text from beginning to end. Just the need for clarification that's identified in verses 1 through 5, then the process of clarification in verses 6 through 21. That's the council itself. Then the report on that clarification, verses 22 to 29, that was a letter sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. And finally, 
the result of clarification, how that letter was received. That's the outline we're going to follow this morning. So let's just move through this text. And this is a great story, by the way. One of the, one of the things that caught my attention most when I was studying church history is when a particular professor had dug deeply into a church council and had read the, the transcripts and knew the dialogue as it had gone back and forth and how the person who was speaking ended up being an influential one at the time, at a, at a key time. How, for instance, the discussions about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity at Nicaea progressed from one speaker to the next and how the ordering even of those speeches ended up having an impact on swaying the people's impression. Well, we get the chance to do that this morning with the Jerusalem Council. We get to enter into the dialogue and hear how they discuss this matter. This is exciting history, folks, and hopefully you're enjoying it with me. So let's look at the need for clarification, verses 1 through 5. And I won't read a whole lot of verses, so have it open before you. I'll anchor it to verses as I'm making different statements, all right? But you'll have to look down and actually see that on the page. First of all, some unnamed men from Judea, verse 1, and likely from Jerusalem. We see that in verses 2 and 24. So some unnamed men from Judea, likely from Jerusalem, came down to this multi-ethnic church in Antioch, teaching that circumcision, which is the sign of the old covenant, was required for Gentiles to enter the new covenant community. That's all covered in verse 1. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, and they engaged in much debate with these men, verse 2. But evidently, it wasn't going anywhere because these two, Paul and Barnabas and some others, were appointed by this church to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders and discuss this question with them, verse 2. All along their way, as they went from Antioch up to Jerusalem, it's south, but it's up in elevation, so that's uh, how you get that language. All along their way, they shared the story of the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. It's not clear necessarily that they were preaching the gospel here. This was an already evangelized area. But they were sharing all along the way the story of what God was doing among the Gentiles. And they were probably sharing that with the Christian Jews who were living here in Phoenicia and Samaria, chapter or verse 3. And Luke records that it brought them great joy. The church was rejoicing all along the way. Remember as well that the Samaritans had their own story of faith. That's recorded back in chapter 8, how they came to saving faith in Christ. So now, hearing the story of the first missionary journey, these folks are just rejoicing with Paul and Barnabas at what God is doing. Well, Paul and Barnabas then arrived in Jerusalem. They were warmly received by the church there, verse 4. Then they immediately initiated the subject which had brought them there. They weren't yet in council. They were just talking with the folks there in Jerusalem. They told their story, verse 4. But the response even there was split. We read in verse 5, some converted Pharisees continued to assert that it is necessary to circumcise Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. There's the dispute. It's quite possible that, men, that the men who originally went to Antioch were part of this group that was disputing with Paul and Barnabas already on their arrival in Jerusalem. But notice down in verse 24, and we'll point that out again a bit later, they weren't sent there officially. This wasn't an official trip 
that they took to Antioch to bring up this issue with that church. And um, James and the elders made a point of that in the letter. We didn't send those guys, just know that. But noting that, this could have been a messy discussion, couldn't it? You can hear all the elements are present for a real eruption of difficulty. So this scene then established the need for clarification. That moves us on to step two, the process of clarification, verses 6 through 21. The apostles and elders, right here in verse 6, convened a council to discuss the issue, and they batted around for quite a while, verse 7. And finally, in the middle of that verse, Peter spoke up and reminded them of his own carrying of the gospel to the Gentiles. And by the way, we're going to move through this quickly because we just read it together. It is a story. I just want to point out some interesting things as we move through it, okay? So not commenting on every phrase, but following the line of Luke's narrative here. Peter spoke up and reminded them of his own carrying of the gospel to the Gentiles, initiated by God himself. I love the way he put it. Look at this in verse 7. God made a choice among you. That's strange language. But he's saying that of the range of things God could do, this is what God did. And in language that speaks directly to them, God made a choice among you. God did this. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Then God himself went the full route, we might say, and gave them the Holy Spirit, verse 8, just as he did to us, just as he did to the Jews. This is God's action, Peter's pointing out. What are we discussing here? Peter might be saying. And remember that God did so. He went the full route intentional and in rather dramatic fashion, sometimes even separating the two events of receiving Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit like he did in Samaria. That's not the general pattern. Everywhere else in Scripture we read that once we are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit immediately. Ephesians 1 makes that point with clarity. UABF that's studying Ephesians, you'll see that in Ephesians 1. But sometimes, as God's doing this in dramatic fashion, He's separating the giving of the Spirit from the actual salvation moment in order to affirm, yes, the Spirit that fell on the community of 120 in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost is now falling on the church of the Gentiles. And we're drawing special attention to that. So he did so in intentional and very dramatic uh, fashion to underscore that, verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them. That's the title of our message this morning. It captures part of the essence of this chapter. He made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So both alike, Jew and Gentile alike, trust in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. Gentiles are reconciled to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by faith in Christ. Just like the Jews are. In fact, the Jews that might think they're being faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but reject Christ as Messiah, are not reconciled to God, while Gentiles who trust Christ as the eternal Son of God and as the one who bears their sins are reconciled to God. 
Dramatic things are happening in the early church, and the church is wrestling to understand them all. Well, then Peter exhorted the brothers with an impassioned rhetorical question in verse 10 that's based on that core affirmation in verse 9, no distinction between us and them. So in verse 10, he poses this question, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you doing this? God himself has chosen to do something different, and you're holding on to this. This could be stated, why would you require the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses when we ourselves weren't even able to do it? That's why Jesus came. We can't keep the law. And then he added the affirmation that stands at the heart and really expresses the soul of this passage and of this debate, really. Verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. This is the heart of the gospel for Jews and Gentiles alike. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will So with a stroke of humble deference to the Gentiles, as well as perhaps just a tinge of ethnic brushback for the Jews, Peter reversed the order here and said that Jewish salvation will happen in the same way that Gentile salvation does. It's a rhetorical moment that's worth noting. It uh, It would have music under it if it were filmed, right? Because this is a dramatic moment. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just like they will. Our salvation is going to imitate theirs. Well, next, Paul and Barnabas then just wowed the assembly with the stories of all that God had done. They'd already talked sort of informally about it when they first arrived. Now they were sharing it in council. The amazing story of all that God had done on their missionary journey. And once they finished that in verse 12, then James spoke up in verse 13. This is the only place where we get a sense of the role that James played. James, the brother of Jesus, played in the early church. James then, who would have been described early in the Gospels as not having believed in Christ, is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's presented here, he's introduced as one who had the authority to deliver the final word, and that's essentially what he does. And his expression was filled with rich biblical theological reflection and insight here. Verse 14, he uses Peter's Jewish name as he starts, right on the heels of Peter having made this statement. It says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he moves off in verse 16 to quote from the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, just a few verses before the end of that prophecy. He's reminding them that God was always intending to call the Gentiles. And you can read about it in the earliest prophet of the Old Testament. Verse 
That's been God's plan all along. And you see it here, verse 16, now quoting from Amos 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. You hear what that's saying, right? I'll rebuild the kingdom of Israel, the throne of David that I promised David in 2 Samuel 7 would be an eternal throne. Well, it's fallen into disrepair through this captivity. But I'll raise it up again. Amos records God as saying, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind, that is the call, the elect from the nations, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So again, chronologically, Amos is the first prophet We hear these words from him. He was writing 790 B.C. probably. The captivity of the ten northern tribes into Assyria began in 722, some 68 years later. So he prophesied the destruction of Israel, Amos did, in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 9. Then through them, Israel would receive in the previous godless nations once they had returned. They would be restored. He promised that restoration. And then Israel would receive in these godless nations who had opposed them all along, and they'd be a blessing to those whom God had called to himself from among the nations. That's who James chooses to quote as he's drawing this discussion to a conclusion. So God had people among the Gentiles who belonged to him. That's what James is saying. God had people among the Gentiles who belonged to him. And from the earliest prophet in Israel, he had made that point. And now this is coming to bear. The prophecy of Amos 800 years ago is now being seen. It's working itself out right before our eyes. That's James's point. God had people among the Gentiles who belonged to him. He loved them. They'd be called by his name, just like a new bride changing her name. And as one commentator put, nothing in this text suggests that they had to become Jews in order to become God's people. Verse 19, therefore, said James, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Strange collection, isn't it? What in the world is he talking about? But he gives us a basis for these four in verse 21 that identifies them as an expression, really, of respect for Jewish custom. Verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So essentially what it seems like James is saying here is because the Jews are constantly reading Moses, let's be sensitive to certain, certain expressions of the law that also have impact on us. Certain expressions of the law that they could find offensive if we don't honor them. Let's just give our attention to that. Before we say anything more about that, why these four, though? What do these four have in common? Why them? There's been a lot written on this subject, folks. 
Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled and blood. What do they have in common? Rather than talking a long time about this, I'm going to read you a summary that comes from Greg Beale that I think is very helpful. He suggests that each of these are connected to expressions of idolatry. And it makes sense. Why these four then? Beale wrote, Gentiles could become clean and become true end-time Israelites by receiving the prophesied spirit by faith without having to keep the law. Why? Because the law is not important anymore? No, because Christ kept the law perfectly and we now receive that by faith. And it, but it doesn't mean that our pattern of obedience won't imitate the law. The law still has a role in the life of the believer. It's just that justification before God is not part of that role. It's part of the obedience, the response of faith and belief that our obedience will take on the pattern of what we read in the Old Testament law, not the, not the dietary customs and so forth. That's suggesting that we have to maintain our faith by the law. But just honoring God in the conscientious way we live. Let me continue on with, with Beale's quote here. Thus, he wrote, while the whole law is in mind here, it is the laws of cleanness and uncleanness that are uppermost in James's mind. When James says that Gentiles must, quote, abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood, he is not imposing mosaic food laws on them, but telling them to abstain from idolatry in order to be spiritually clean in the new age. Each of these four things Gentiles are to stay away from are connected to the worship of idols. The first, third, and fourth referring to animal sacrifices offered to idols. And fornication may refer to cult prostitution or merely to immorality in which all Christians must not participate as part of those rituals. So to summarize this, the whole point here, the bottom line, is that the law no longer holds sway in the acceptance of the gospel. It leads us to the doorstep of the gospel, but it does not hold sway in the acceptance of it. Rather, it seems that the point is to abstain voluntarily from practices that would be offensive to the Jews of any stripe who are routinely hearing the law read at the synagogue. And also, new believers will also hear the law written, or hear the law read, and won't lose touch with the law even while not having to obey it in order to become a Christian. This benefits the community. That's what James appears to be saying. And now this message needs to be communicated. That moves us on to step three, report on this clarification. Verses 22 to 29, the importance of this council's conclusion is understood by its immediate repetition in this letter. When you read biblical narrative and things are repeated, pay attention. That's important. And the whole decision of this council is now repeated again immediately in the text of Scripture by giving us the content of this letter in verses 23 to 29 letter sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. But even though this letter is written, and we won't walk through those details, we just walked through them, now they're being told again, in addition to this written message from Jerusalem to Antioch, still Judas, called Barsabbas here, verse 22, and Silas, 
were sent along with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch because face-to-face communication added something even to this written message. And it did so in at least two ways. You hear that referred to in the letter. We're sending these guys to underscore what we're telling to you. So two things are added here by sending these two representatives along with a written letter. First, these two guys magnified the authenticity of the letter's contents. Implied in verse 27. And it, it, it magnified them on behalf of the apostles and the elders and the whole church. Do you see that in verse 32? This is an expression not just from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, but from the whole church in Jerusalem to the whole church in Antioch. The church was involved. We don't entrust these discussions to others. We enter into them. Yes, and maybe in this case, the, the elders and the apostles took the lead in the church today. The elders take the lead in those discussions, but the body engages because this is the truth of God and it's important. Even here, the whole church of Jerusalem was involved. That's the first thing. It underscored the authenticity of the contents of the letter, these personal visit. The second thing that these two guys coming along affirmed is that this group had a deep and sincere love for Paul and Barnabas. Verse 24. They make that point. We want you to understand the contents of the letter and we want you to know that we love and respect these two guys that came to talk to us about it. So how did this message land back in Antioch? The result of the clarification, step four. The people were glad to receive the letter, verse 31. And the two from Jerusalem, Judas and Silas, spent some fruitful time there in Antioch, verse 32, before returning home with blessings for their church. And then you'll notice that verse 34 is not present in our ESV. It's because it's not in some of the older manuscripts. All it says down there, you can see it in footnote 4 on the page of of an ESV Bible. The verse says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. I think that's someone's insertion just to make sense of the fact that it sounded like they sent these guys away and then just a few verses later, Silas is there again. It doesn't appear as though it belongs in the text, but even so, it's clear that Silas either stayed or more likely left and then returned very soon after because he ended up being Paul's partner on the second missionary journey that you can see in verse 40 and following. In the meantime, though, while that was going on, Paul and Barnabas and others continued in the work there at Antioch, verse 35, and with that, this narrative is completed. So let me ask the question, what difference does it make to us? What difference does this make to us? Well, friends, as I've insinuated all along, even expressed all along, it makes a great deal of difference. We can talk about the truths of our faith, the truths of the gospel, as though they're just bare intellectual propositions that exist somewhere etched in stone for our memorization and review and and recitation, as though they, they drop from heaven fully formed. We can treat Christian truth as though it's distant, as though we just sort of study the stone tablets bleary-eyed 
in a dim and musty classroom. But that's not so. The truths of the gospel, the truths of our faith, are the very descriptions of our life. They're the descriptions of our hope. They're the descriptions of our forever well-being. They've been forged in the fire of human experience and suffering. Many of our brothers and sisters through history have forfeited their lives in pursuit of a clear expression of these doctrines. So they've been forged in the fire of human experience and suffering from our encouragements as image-bearing creatures with the eternal and unchanging Word of God. As we engage and are moved by the Word of God, we come into contact with these truths and they work their way into our souls and we, we trust them, we believe them, and we're, we're jealously faithful to them. It matters to us what they say. It matters to us how they're defended. It matters deeply to us. Therefore, limited time that we have, three quick lessons this morning, three quick lessons that are worthy of mention on this topic. Just pulled out of the text, and I will go through these quickly. First of all, theological disagreements will be present even within spiritually vibrant communities. Theological disagreements will be present even within spiritually vibrant communities. These days we can think otherwise, and that can make us nervous when we hear of theological differences. We begin to ask questions. What difference does it make? What was wrong with what we believed before? Can't we all just get along? But even back in the first century church, which many think we should still be imitating today, right? Even back in the first century church, there were theological disagreements that needed to be addressed and resolved. There were relational differences that needed to be addressed and resolved. We won't get out of chapter 15 before encountering the most famous one in Scripture, Paul and Barnabas, dividing over John Mark with regard to the second missionary journey. So there are theological and relational disagreements, differences, all the way back to the early church that need to be addressed and resolved. And that really is okay. We're fallen human beings. We don't get it right from the start. We'll always be growing in our knowledge and understanding of these things. Always. Jonathan Edwards says we'll still be discovering new truth as we progress in heaven in terms of our understanding of this eternal and immense God. We will always be growing in our knowledge and understanding of these things. So get used to that. Theological disagreements will be present even within spiritually vibrant communities. Second, theological disagreements are worthy of debate until resolution is reached. Even though they'll always be with us, they are worthy of debate and discussion until resolution is reached. There isn't any agree to disagree going on in this early church discussion here. Now, there are some subjects which may take a while, a long while, may even need more time or information to resolve them. Models of creation, 
divine sovereignty versus human responsibility, the order of salvation, many others, long debates, still raging on how they work. We here have taken positions on these matters. And yet we still dialogue graciously with those who disagree with us. And disputes remain. But when eternal truth is the subject, it really is worth any amount of work required to grasp and to explain and to clarify and to defend and even to apply that eternal truth. So the best advice at such times is just to press on, to press on with humility, gentleness, respect, patience, the very qualities that Scripture teaches us should be present in us in such dialogues and debates, such qualities as the apostles themselves modeled here in Acts 15. And we press on in those things until the matter is resolved to the glory of God. Some of them might wait until the kingdom. Third, finally, theological disagreement was best addressed through dialogue even when supernatural gifts were present. I love this. Theological disagreement was best addressed through dialogue even when supernatural gifts were present. Don't miss this striking point here. Judas and Silas, these two guys who went with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, were prophets, verse 32. They were prophets. But discerning God's truth still rested on dialogue and debate among mature believers in the presence of those prophets. Depended on dialogue and debate along with, I'm sure, prayer, although that is notably absent in chapter 15. Just interesting. But the presence of the Spirit isn't, and we know the two are related from all that Luke has written so far. So along with prayer and the ministry of the Spirit among them, but not, it was not dependent on supernatural pronouncements. God was putting the church through this process of wrestling with these truths. Even while He had prophets among them. This is an important reminder. It's also a genuine reassurance to us today. We might otherwise think that we're fighting a losing battle when we're working through difficult matters of biblical or theological interpretation. Like we really can't settle them fully because God doesn't seem to gift people today in the same ways that He did back then. We can think of this as a disadvantage. I don't think it is. It's not. You can see it on the pages of Scripture here. He works through His church, through His Spirit and His Word, still today, just like He did back then, and that strengthens the church. This process strengthens believers. It's how we grow in the knowledge and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We wrestle with such matters as these. Oh, again, tempted to continue on. Such an important passage for the church today, but we're going to call it quits there. We're going to now come to the table of the Lord, an expression that has generated much of this discussion and debate throughout the history of the church. But we still come based on our clearest understanding of God and His Word that He has called us here to, the, to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that has reconciled us to Himself 
and to look forward at the same time to the eternal reward that comes through it. And we come believing that He is present with us by His Spirit as we participate in faith. Brothers and sisters have lost their lives defending their understanding of what's happening as we gather at the table of the Lord. Do we come that seriously? Do we come based on our faith in Christ and saying, here is my best understanding of the Word. We stand here confidently. We stand here firmly. And we stand here to receive the grace of God that comes to us through this act of obedience, done in faith, believing, fallen, limited in our understanding though we are, but strengthened in our pursuit of God through this very act that remains a mystery to us, even while it is a weekly part of our celebration that we describe in great detail according to God's Word. Let's gather now at the table of the Lord. Musicians, as I pray, you can come and join me on the platform, and those who are going to help serve communion, please gather at the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text of Scripture, though it can seem like an academic lesson or alone for those who are engaged in the work of biblical interpretation and theology, we can see from explicit references in the text that the whole church was engaged and took this seriously. We can see through the history of the church that as big debates arose, the church was discussing them on the street together through the week. Oh, Father, help us to take seriously these truths, not just because they are important from the very pages of Scripture, but because we can see through the experience of the church that they have been taken seriously by brothers and sisters throughout history. Again, to the point of forfeiting their lives, many of them, help us to take them seriously in our day and in so doing, leave a faithful witness to the generations that follow of the importance of the truths of God's word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's pray together one more time and trust ourselves to the Lord as we remember the body and blood of Christ. Heavenly Father, we do this by faith, believing that Jesus himself established this act of remembrance that we might never forget about the implications of his death, the shedding of his very literal blood, the sacrifice of his enfleshed body for us that we might be reconciled to you and then to look forward Lord God based on his own anticipation of the next time he will drink the cup with his followers and we look forward to that day in the kingdom the marriage supper of the lamb when we will rejoice together in a completed salvation in Jesus name we pray Amen.